Welcome to this episode of the My Journey as a Physicist podcast. Each episode features an interview with a physicist to learn about their work, their interests outside of physics, and their professional journey of how they ended up where they are today. Season 2 features physicists involved in the particle physics planning community known as SNOMASS. Hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, Sager. Could you briefly introduce yourself? What is your current job and position? So my name is Sager Chavukula. I'm a distinguished professor of physics at UC San Diego. I'm a theoretical particle physicist who's interested in electroweak symmetry breaking, the origin of the top quark mass, and collider physics, uh, among other things. I have been in the field for about 30 years, I guess. I've been at various institutions, including Michigan State. I was at Boston University, Michigan State, uh, and, and now UC San Diego uh, as a faculty member. Yeah, so maybe that's uh, that's a start. Can you kind of describe in more detail then what your actual work is and what are the actual questions that you're trying to, to answer? Sure. So I joined the field at the time that the United States was thinking about building the superconducting supercollider. And so I became interested at that time in the question of what is the agent of electroweak symmetry breaking? We knew by that time that the fundamental electroweak theory was a unified theory based on SU2 cross U1, but we knew that there was a, some kind of spontaneous symmetry breaking going on that picked out one direction in that space. And so that was electromagnetism and was the unbroken gauge group. And that the other directions orthogonal to it were associated with the weak interactions the, and the W and the Z, the massive W and Z boson. So the W, in fact, the first year I was in graduate school, the, the, the W was discovered and the Nobel Prize was given for the discovery of the, the W. So I was intrigued by the idea that there, there is this new, you know, all pervading agent of some kind in the universe, new element of our, our, our fundamental understanding of physics that was responsible for electroweak symmetry breaking. The Higgs model, of course, had been, had been uh, of course, introduced, but that relied on a, an object very different than anything we'd ever seen before, a fundamental scalar particle. And so I was interested in, in theories in which electroweak symmetry breaking had a dynamical origin. They used to go under the name of, of technicolor. And so for a long time, I, I, I joke that I I, I spent my time telling people there would not, in fact, be a Higgs boson discovered. Of course, things changed 10 years ago when we uh, when the Higgs boson was discovered. But the questions surrounding electroweak symmetry breaking still remain. It's an object unlike anything else. No other fundamental particle we've ever seen has these has the property of being a, a you know a spinless boson. There's still questions about you know is it intrinsically a, a you know a fundamental particle? Is it a is it a composite particle? Is it associated with with a, a new kind of symmetry like supersymmetry? And so those are all still relevant questions. You know, 30 years later after I I started uh, thinking about them. Yeah, that's really interesting. Then, so when you said like you were originally didn't. So they believe that model or theory or hypothesis, and then, you know, they discover the Higgs boson. Like, how does that sort of adapt or how do you adapt to that? Or like in, in terms of like the questions you're answering or like how you approach things or you think about physics? <laughs> Maybe because I'm stubborn as opposed to anything else. Many of the same approaches and ideas that I've been interested in for a long time continue, I think, to be useful. I mean, we we have examples of particles in nature, in particular, say the pions of, of QCD, which are, are, you know, we know they are fundamentally made out of quarks and gluons, but their masses are much, much less than the characteristics scale associated with the, with, with the strong interactions. For example, the pion mass is much less than the proton mass. And we know that's associated with spontaneously broken global symmetry, approximate global symmetry. And so that same idea um, can be used to think about models in which the 
the Higgs boson, say, as a composite particle. So that that's one approach that continues, I think, to be viable. It also is an interesting way of characterizing or understanding our measurements of the Higgs boson as the Higgs boson properties become established. And if they continue to be close to or equal to their standard model predictions, then that gives us limits on the scale, so say, associated with the compositeness of that particle. We know now that the properties of the Higgs boson correspond to that of the standard model to the order of, say, 10 to 20%. That means that the Higgs itself must be composite at a scale of a TeV or higher, or a little more than a TeV. If that were to be 1%, then that may change, you know, to 10 TeV. And, and, and in some sense, right, you never prove that an object is, is fundamental. You just show that the if it were if it's composite, its composite scale is very very high. But at some point, of course, it gets out of reach of your of your experimental ability to probe, and at some point, it may you know turn out it's better to think of it as a fundamental particle, and and that would certainly be the case, for example, if we were to discover supersymmetric partners of the of the Higgs and and other particles. Yeah, can you sort of describe what the collaboration of your type of work looks like? Is it a, a smaller group? Do you collaborate with many? people across you know, a large team? What does sort of that look like? So as a, as a theoretical physicist, you know, I know we have that idea of the lone physicist in their, in their lab, like Einstein, you know, working at the, being during the day in the patent office and at night finishing, you know, revolutionizing physics on, on his own. Even Einstein, of course, worked with others and was in, in communication with, with others. And that's even more the case now in theoretical physics than, than it is. The beginning of my career, I, I, more of my work was, was individual with a few people, two or three individuals. I think now our collaborations tend to be more, you know, five or, or, or up to 10 people, depending on, you know, what kinds of expertise we need to bring to the table and who happens to be there to discuss ideas, bounce ideas with uh, off of when we're, uh, when we're, when we're getting started. So my collaborations tend to be on the order of a few to, to six or seven. And then with your work, can you can describe like, what does sort of day to day as a theoretical, like, are you working out mathematical equations by hand? Or are you doing simulation type work? How does a theorist life from your perspective sort of look like? So we, we use several different tools. My own focus has largely been on paper and pencil theoretical calculations, which maybe now extend to including you know, using Mathematica or something like that. But more and more over time, especially when we were interested in collider phenomenology, where we're trying to make predictions of, about what we might see, say, at the Large Hadron Collider or at the Tevatron before that, more and more it relies on simulation work to understand the size of the signals and the backgrounds associated with certain kinds of uh, of physics. And that involves more computational work. I'm not an expert myself in, in the details of those uh, simulations. I, I rely on my collaborators and my, my students and my postdocs often to provide that expertise. And that's part of what makes physics fun is that people, you know, different people bring different talents to the table. Can you describe what your involvement with SNOMAS is? So I serve as chair-elect of the Division of Particles of Fields uh, of the American Physical Society. And so the the way that the, the divisions in the American Physical Society work is you're elected for sort of a four-year sequential term. You start as vice chair, and then you spend a year as chair-elect, then you spend a year as chair, and then a year as past chair. So my deeper involvement with SNOMAS started when I was elected as vice chair last year. SNOMAS was well underway. And in fact, we had to pause SNOMAS because of the COVID pandemic that we, we paused work for about 
about eight months or so. What has now happened is, of course, Snowmass is about to happen next month. So I'm working closely with our, our DPF chair, Joel Butler, as well as uh, you know Gordon Watts, whom I believe you you interviewed as the, one of the you know local organizing committee at, at, at Snowmass to to sort of make sure that the that the actual workshop goes off smoothly and that we're able to properly make sure that all views in the community are are, are expressed and appreciated and then at, then there's more work than after that a lot of work has been going on now in the in the so-called frontiers the different sort of topical areas in inside particle physics in the United States and each of them is writing uh, reports you know the, the the different topical groups are writing reports so they're getting put together into Top into sort of frontier reports on large areas like energy frontier or cosmic frontier. And then those are all going to be shared and discussed at Snowmass in July. And then we eventually have to put together an executive summary that sort of puts, you know, and brings together all of these different pieces to try to create view of particle physics, U.S. particle physics, that's both comprehensive and coherent. And so that part has to be developing that vision at, at Snowmass itself, but then it has to be put the paper and and I'll be involved along with the editorial board, which includes the others in the chair line and 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 others of us to 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 do that afterwards. And then the ultimate consumer, if you want, for that report is the field itself. So we have a record of what it is that we believe at this time. But we expect and we know that the funding agencies, the Department of of energy and the NSF, a particle physics project prioritization panel, P5 which will try to make recommendations. They'll take the sort of scientific vision that we put together and try to see how that scientific vision maps onto potential budget scenarios over the next decade to try to really understand, you know, how it is that the funding agencies can support U.S. particle physics in a way that reflects the scientific priorities of the field. So we're very fortunate that our funding agencies listen to us. They're strong, you know, the people who, who work in the funding agencies are scientists. They're committed to supporting science. And so we have this collaborative process by which we convert scientific priorities into possible, into actual programs. Yeah, yeah. That's always like super interesting. How does that take into account, obviously, like the U.S. big powerhouse in doing physics and particle physics, but also, you know, a lot of these projects are now huge where they're like international like collaborations. Is there any input from outside of the U.S. can in these decisions or anything like that? Absolutely. And those, that input comes in several ways. First and foremost, that while the Snowmass workshop is a gathering of the U.S. particle physics community, it's very much open to, and in fact, we have a large number of international participants. I you know, if I had to venture at least 10 to 20% of the individuals who will come have based at institutions outside the United States, especially with our large collaborations in Europe and in Japan and China, uh, India, other, other places as well. That's one mechanism. Another is there are similar kinds of planning processes that are occurring in other parts of the world. So for example, in Europe, there's a Euro European strategy session as well. In fact, that just concluded last year. And so we're taking their work also as as input, and our work will reflect those findings, you know, from our from our perspective, and take those into into account. And then the agencies themselves work with their fellow agencies and laboratories across the world to come to an agreement and to come to, you know, ultimately these. When when a, when an art, large international collaboration you know gets going like the the LHC for example, you know there are there are formal agreements between the funding agencies between the governments even 
that uh, specify what kinds of contributions each uh, country will make. And then the scientists within that country work within that framework. Can I, going back a little bit, um, what got you interested in doing physics in the first place? I think what, what really drives me is understanding things. I love to understand things. And I became very uh, enamored of the idea that you could use mathematics to actually build models and, and compute results of physical processes. You know, I think, I think it's Wigner who said, right, it's amazing that, that uh, we can use mathematics so, you know, so well to describe the, the world accurately. And so when I was in high school, I was involved, I went to a, a, a summer program where we took astronomical plates, we took pictures of the position of an asteroid on three different nights, and we computed the orbit. And the idea that you could then, you know, take the position of, the, of an asteroid on a particular day, uh, you know, a particular night, I guess, and a particular uh, time at, at three different, at three different times, and actually compute you know, the elements of its orbit, the eccentricity and, 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 and such distance from the sun, things like that, from those three measurements from, you know, six, six degrees of freedom, basically, which was quite amazing to me, the idea that you could use mathematics to accurately understand and describe the world. And so that's, that's, I think, the, the, my, the, what's what's fundamentally attracted me to physics and so i've continued to be interested as i said when i came into uh, particle physics attracted me both because you could you know you could use interesting mathematics and also because it, it seemed like a, a way of sort of understanding the the universe at a, at a fundamental level when i was starting graduate school rocky kolb and mike turner and dave schramm and others were showing that you could use these theories of particle physics to describe the early universe the inflation was a relatively new theory at that time to understand you know the very first few moments of the of the big bang and the evolution of the universe so the idea that particle physics was connected not only to the to the very small, but to the very large standard model was being, you know, we, we, we felt like we were at the verge of, and we're at the verge of sort of putting the last few elements of the standard model together. The W and Z, as I said, were, were, were discovered shortly before I started graduate school or about the time I started. And then about a decade later, I guess the top quark was discovered and now the, the, the Higgs boson. All in all, that led me in the path of theoretical particle physics. It's, it's really interesting how like when you first got interested in like, applying math to like physics or describing the world was, you know, studying these massive, you know, asteroids up in the, in the sky. And now you're measuring like, you know, the smallest parts of the universe is kind of interesting how you got like the whole scale in there. Very nice. Now, if you feel comfortable sharing, were there any obstacles or hurdles that you had to overcome in your career journey as a physicist getting to where you are? So in general, I would say no, I've been very privileged and, and lucky as a, you know, as a as an American physicist of Indian origin, a, a man, I'm not of a group that's particularly underrepresented in in STEM or in in, uh, in physics. I have not had to deal in general within particle physics with any kind of systemic bias that would that would that would make it difficult. And in fact, I'd say that's been an obstacle to me in understanding really how important and how different other people's experiences can be. One of the things that certainly we're focused on at, at DPF and I'm focused on as 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 chair elect is making sure that we make particle physics as inclusive and representative as we can. You know, I said I really enjoy understanding things. And one of the things I'm trying to understand is what are the obstacles as a field for us in really making progress? You know, I think 
there's more of an understanding of the sort of general societal issues around gender discrimination or racial discrimination or discrimination against people with, with disabilities. But I also think that as a field, we have to take responsibility for the fact that some of the things that we hold dear can sometimes make make it more complicated, actually, you know, in interaction with those societal prejudices. So uh, there's a wonderful book I'm reading right now called uh, Misconceiving Merit, which goes through in great detail about certain things that all STEM fields tend to believe in and how they interact to actually make, to amplify the sort of social biases that, that we all, societal biases that we all uh, come up with. So, you know, and, and there's there are things like, you know, our, our dedication to excellence. We all believe that we'd like to believe science is, is, an, is an objective endeavor and that, you know, we, we know good science from bad science and, uh, and there's no room for discrimination in in our you know the judgments that we make about individuals but you know that that dedication to excellence is a two-edged sword because we're not always able to have access to the to really how people are thinking and what they are doing and so we we often rely on on shortcuts to figure out whether you know someone is excellent or not and some of the you know I, I remember when I was a, a student, it was common in, in, in physics classes and, and seminars to say, oh, this is just, this is trivial, right? It was sort of the ultimate humble brag, right? Because it was a, a complicated concept you felt was, you would say it was trivial to say, oh, of course I can understand it. And then implying, of course, if, if you don't understand it, you must be deficient in, 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 in some way. We, we use those kinds of uh, markers to uh, you know, someone who, who who may be at least in, in my past, at least someone who may be more aggressive in that in that way as a marker of of excellence. It may actually have nothing to do with their actual fundamental understanding or or, or excellence. So so the sorts of things that we as a field believe in, while they are important, I mean, no, no one would say that excellence isn't important. We have to be aware of the fact of how they interact with biases we already bring from you know other parts of uh, of our lives to to make it even more difficult for some to fully participate. In yeah, for sure. Like, who is defining what is excellent? Of you know, we all have in our mind like what we think it is, but then everyone has who's the gatekeeper there. So uh, to answer your question, I for myself, I would say I've generally been quite privileged and not actually suffered from bias or discrimination in. Science. I also have spent time as an academic administrator at different, in fact, I was Dean of Undergraduate Studies at Michigan State for a while and Associate Provost. And, you know, that that's sort of a different arena. While Asian men, say, are not underrepresented in any way in STEM, if you were to look at academic administration, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. And so then, you know, you, you become you start to become aware of uh, how maybe your experience in one field doesn't translate completely in the same way to another field. And, and or when I when I cross an international border at, at the U.S., I'm in the U into the U.S. I'm much more likely to be called aside to for extra screening just based on anecdotal evidence. I don't, I don't know that I could prove it statistically or not. And I'm not accusing TSA of anything or but but, you know, I think I have some experiences, but not nearly any that would to the extent that others have had. And, and but thank you for sharing. When you're not working as a physicist, doing all this this great work and all the other involvements that you have, like like how do you relax? Do you have hobbies or anything out, outside of physics or is it just like physics and academia all the time? Oh, I definitely have hobbies outside. I, I practice meditation. I do hiking. I uh, enjoy spending time outdoors, spending time with my family, uh, with friends. I think I've always been committed. I, I, I don't know that I've always been successful, but I've always been committed at, 
to try to, I mean, balance is a kind of a vexed term. You're always unbalanced in some way. And the question is, can you, can you rotate that unbalance in such a way that all portions of your life are reflected uh, appropriately? But those things, I, I've, I've tried very hard to make, make sure I continue to, to have time for those. I'm also a member of a dual career academic couple. My spouse is also a particle theorist. We actually run a research group together. She's now an academic administrator here at UCSD as well, as well as being a, a professor. I, I am just, a, you know, we've had to n navigate two academic careers and family uh, all at the same time. We've been very privileged and lucky that we've been able to, to be at the same institution, to find positions and to be able to support one another in our careers and also continue to work together. Some people have said they they, they they think it would be hard to work with their spouse if it's worked out for us. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's good to hear. Yeah. I was even wondering, it's like, is it just like work and home? Like, do you have like clear boundaries of like, okay, now we're at home or just, you know, talk about home stuff rather than, than work stuff or does, do, does everything kind of blend together? I think it all kind of blends together. I think that's kind of a relationship issue that everyone has to navigate. We found ways of being able to communicate clearly about what needed to be done and, and focus on what needed to be done and, and, and be able to support one another at each point without having necessarily inflexible boundaries about, you know, we will only talk about physics in the office and we'll only talk about family at home. Sort of wrapping things up a little bit, do you have any advice that you would give young researchers um, in the early stages of their physics careers? I know it's hard, but I would hope that they would find something that they're really passionate about, even if that passion changes. I mean, I, I know over the course of my career, what I've been passionate about in particular, or the different kinds of things that I've done, whether I've gone into administration or doing other things, have, have changed. But at each step, I think I was able, I was lucky to be able to believe in what I was doing and feel good about about spending that, that time. So, you know, I, I would hope that even as, as young researchers, that people would find problems that they're, they're, they're interested in. The experience of being able to work on something you care about and uh, hopefully make, make progress is something that then I think is very rewarding and, and can, can be extrapolated to other situations. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to participate. It was really fun and interesting talking with you. Thank you very much, Brian. I enjoyed speaking with you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. This podcast was created by Brian Stanley and Professor Wei Wen Lin. Season 2 was edited by Varley Sakorikar. Thank you for listening.